Turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We will be starting in verse 1 of Acts chapter 2. If you do not have a Bible with you, we will have it on the screen. You can follow along that way. Um, and if you don't own a Bible, uh, then we would encourage you to find one in one of the pews around you. There should be some located in the backs of the pews. Uh, they maybe have some bent edges, maybe some wear and tear from people moving in and out of the pews and, uh, and using those. But we would encourage you anyway, if you don't own a Bible, take that Bible with you. Um, the, the messages that we preach here on Sunday mornings um, mean very little if they are out of line with the Word of God. And so if you don't have the Word of God in order to check everything that is said here from the pulpit, um, then you are trusting us too much. Uh, do not trust uh, preachers so much that you do not read the Word of God for yourself. So uh, make sure that if you own a Bible, uh, that you are using that and not just trusting your pastors uh, explicitly. Acts chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verse 1 through verse 13 this morning. If you would, church family, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked and said, they are filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you today, and Lord, we ask as we come, Lord, we come knowing that we are people that are full of pride, and we are oftentimes arrogant even about our own abilities, and Lord, that goes for each and every one of us in this room. And so we ask today, Lord, that you would humble us, that you would humble us both as we come to your word, seeking to understand it rightly and truly, and Lord, also that by your word, you would humble us. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to see this passage the way you have intended for us to see it and to understand it. Lord, that you would give us grace and mercy in this time as we study. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, my title for today is Yet Another Fulfillment. And I've titled it this in light of, really, our last sermon series. We spent a good portion of this last year 
of 2022, preaching through the book of Hebrews. And there are, are plenty of things that we could say about the book of Hebrews that, I mean, it's, a, it's a, an amazing book. And there are all, all kinds of themes that spring out of that book. But one theme that kept coming up throughout the book of Hebrews was how Christ was the fulfillment of so much of what we see in the Old Testament, so much of what we see under the Old Covenant. Christ is the fulfillment of that. Throughout the book of Hebrews, we saw how Christ was the fulfillment of the Sabbath, that he is our Sabbath rest. In him we find rest like no other. We find in the book of Hebrews that he is the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. The reason we no longer sacrifice animals the way the Jews did in the Old Testament was because Christ is the fulfillment of those things. All of those things were shadows of which Christ is the substance. We learned also how Christ is the substance. He is the fulfillment of the Passover. He is our Passover lamb. The reason we as Christians no longer celebrate the Passover the same way the, the Jews did and still do to this day is because in Christ, all these things are fulfilled. But what we might not realize is that what we see in Pentecost is yet another fulfillment that Christ accomplishes. We, we remember Passover because of the way it sticks out in our, in our mind as Christ shared this last Passover meal with his disciples and in that moment proclaimed how he was the fulfillment of the Passover and changed it forever so that we no longer celebrate the Passover as Christians, certainly not in the same way the Jews do. But what we, I think, see today from our text, what I hope that we see, is that in the same way, Christ is the fulfillment of Pentecost. We here in the, the West, in evangelicalism, and the Protestant world, when we think of Pentecost, we think of it usually exclusively in terms of after Acts 2. That for us, Pentecost means the coming of the Holy Spirit. And indeed, that's a, a good and right thing to, to direct our minds to when we think about what Pentecost is. But Pentecost, as we see here in Acts 2, was not something that was invented on this day. Rather, it was on this day of Pentecost, of this Jewish feast, that the Lord chose to move in this miraculous, miraculous way and that the Holy Spirit came and these signs and wonders that we see here in Acts chapter 2 were accomplished, effectively changing forever what Pentecost is. What we see is that here Christ is the fulfillment of the Pentecost. We see it fulfilled exclusively in a triune way through Christ, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit as he has come. Pentecost, you see, was a day that was celebrated by the Jews. It was celebrated 50 days after the Passover, and it marked for them the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. This time when, when God showed his provision to the people after leading them out of Egypt, they then came 50 days later to Mount Sinai and were given the law, and in that found that God had provided for them. So what is celebrated at Pentecost is God's provision. This is why it was also tied to the harvest. The harvest season for the people in Israel 
was such that on Pentecost they would bring the first fruits of their harvest to celebrate the first fruits, to celebrate God's provision for them. And so I want us to consider today and look at how Pentecost is fulfilled here in Acts chapter 2. And I want us to consider the implications and the results of this fulfillment that we still see today. I want us to start with what I've titled point number one, looking at this as a breakthrough event. The scene that, Luke's des- that Luke describes in verses one through three of Acts chapter two is pretty amazing, and it's pretty wild. We read in verses one through three, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. This was an amazing scene, a scene like nothing these men had ever experienced before. It was a scene so much so that, that no previous event that they had ever experienced gave them a category, a framework with which to describe what they were seeing now. And so Luke, the the author, had to try and find ways to explain this unexplainable, indescribable event. He had to just uh, use the closest representation that he could come up with to describe this amazing event. This is why we see the words in here, like and as of. That he says there was a sound like a mighty rushing wind and divided tongues as of fire. Meaning that what was happening here was really not anything that they could accurately, correctly, precisely put into words. But it was a miraculous event best described as something like the sound of a rushing wind, something as of fire in the form of split tongues over each of the disciples. This amazing event left them speechless, but not really, as we see. The reason this event was so amazing was because this event was a breakthrough event where God himself broke through into our physical world and manifested himself in a rare and amazing and remarkable way. We, we sometimes forget, I think, that these kinds of events were not any more common to these people in this day than they were to us. Maybe to an extent for the disciples who followed Jesus. But they didn't just walk around every day seeing tongues of fire appearing over people's head and always hearing the sound of rushing wind when nothing was being blown away. This would have been an amazing and perhaps even initially frightening event for these men. I mean, put yourself in the disciples' shoes as, as you are told from from Jesus himself, go and, and wait for the Holy Spirit and you go. And as we know, they were, they were busy praying and they were, uh, they were selecting Matthias to be the replacement for Judas. But they had no idea what to expect when the Holy Spirit was gonna come. In fact, it could have been that they were sitting around wondering, I mean, has he come yet? How will we know? Will we, will, will we know when the Holy Spirit comes? And here we have the answer, yes. There was no doubt in their mind at this moment that God, the Holy Spirit, had entered the scene. And his entrance was 
was miraculous and amazing. I don't know if how many of you in here, I know there are some in here uh, that enjoy watching WWE wrestling, uh, if it's called WWE, I sometimes get the names mixed up. It's changed names a few times. Um, but if you are, are a fan of WWE, uh, of these wrestling TV shows where these guys get out there in their underwear and they wrestle with each other on this thing and they pretend to hit each other while they kick the floor, these kinds of things. Uh, sorry if, if I've triggered you right now. But one of the most amazing things, whether you're a fan of these, of these TV shows or not, I'm clearly not a huge fan, whether you are or not, one thing that's undeniable is that some of the entrances that these wrestling stars come into the arena with are pretty cool. I mean, if you go, just go and YouTube uh, entrances by WWE wrestlers, and you'll get all kinds of, of playlists and, and top 10s, top 20s, all this stuff. But I mean, you'll, you'll, you have no idea what you'll see. There are times when they'll drive cars through, grass, through glass walls into the arena. There's fog and smoke and fire and, and, and lightning on the screen behind them. All these crazy things. Some people are, are carried in on pedestals. Crazy wild. One, well, this one guy, what was it, Stone Cold, uh, came riding in on a four-wheeler one time, just zooming around the arena. And everyone in the arena goes nuts, man, it's awesome. It's like, whoa, yeah, that's so cool, yeah. But I would contend to you today that all of these entrances, whoever it might be, however cool they entered the arena, the arena in WWE, every single one of them, in comparison to when God enters the scene, is weak sauce. None of them holds a candle. You see, whenever God enters onto the scene, he doesn't have to have CGI lightning behind him. He doesn't have to have fog machines with dry ice creating fog. No, when he comes, he uses nature itself to produce lightning, to create clouds, for fire to appear. The kind of scene that we have here in Acts is one of those scenes when God enters into the arena. It corresponds with other moments that we see in Scripture when God's presence descends upon the earth. Consider just, just a couple in Job chapter 38, verse 1, when Job, as you recall, has been lamenting throughout the entire book, and, and he has these so-called friends who are, are there to, to comfort him and uh, honestly at times cause him just more pain than, than comfort. And, and Job himself is full of, of lament and sorrow and, and bitterness, and uh, even to the point that he wishes he were dead. And after all of this, the Lord allows it for so long, and he goes on and on, and then all of a sudden, the Lord speaks. And when the Lord speaks, how does he speak to Job? The Bible says he speaks out of the whirlwind. He answered Job out of a whirlwind. This must have been a very frightening and awe-inspiring and amazing scene for Job when not only was God speaking to him, but he was speaking out of a whirlwind. Or I think maybe even more appropriately, consider on, on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. We see this scene when God's presence descends to the earth and is present here at the mountain. And this is what we read, just a, a short bit of this explanation in Exodus 19. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. 
And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. This is just a short excerpt of this story when God's presence descended on Mount Sinai. And the response of of the people was to say, we don't want to go anywhere near that mountain. It was terrifying to them, deathly terrifying. How can we stand before a God like this? It seems undeniable then that when we compare the scene that we have here in Acts to these other moments in Scripture, that what we see is that this is the explanation for these events, that God's presence had come. God's presence was made known in this house in a mighty way so that there was no wondering as to whether or not Christ had kept his promise to send the helper, but that he had come. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God had come in this amazing breakthrough event. And we begin to see as we read in this passage, immediately what he had come to do was beginning to be accomplished. Point number two, the undoing of the curse, undoing the curse. One of the first things that we notice that the Holy Spirit does as he has now descended upon these disciples in a miraculous and amazing way, the first thing that is undone is the curse of Babel. If you recall from Genesis 11, up until that point, up to Genesis 11, there was one language shared by all mankind. And mankind, what did they do? They, they schemed together. They came up with this plan to, to make themselves great, to reach God and began t- building this tower, the Tower of Babel. And it's, it's kind of a, a funny moment in that story when, when God, it says, came down to see this tower that they had built, this tower that, that their claim was, we're going to reach the heavens, we're going to ascend to God, and the text tells it as though God was like, oh, that tower, Wait, that little bitty thing? If, uh, if you have been around for, for a long time here at the church, you'll remember Sean, Melvin, uh, the Melvin family when they were here. I've never heard, uh, never seen someone depict this better than when Sean Melvin was preaching on Uh, Genesis 11 and got down on his hands and knees depicting God had to get down way down there close to see this great tower that these people had built and what we see in this scene in Genesis 11 was that as God came and he saw the wickedness in their hearts he saw their their pride and their arrogance what did God do he cursed them by confusing their languages and as they were building this tower all of a sudden the work halted the the unity that was there was corrupted was broken as god as god put this curse on them and mixed all their languages and here all of a sudden all of these different people were speaking various languages and just like that the unity that they had to build this tower was broken and it's a a disunity that has existed for the rest of history even the great alexander the great in his attempt to try and bring about one universal language across the world, across his empire, even that was not enough to unify all people under one language. It was a barrier that was created that has always existed. But here's the amazing thing that we see, is that the curse of Babel by the Holy Spirit here in Acts 2 is immediately proven to be undone in pursuit of the gospel. In addition to 
the undoing of the curse in Babel, we see in this miraculous moment the removal of any barrier to the gospel. The church, equipped by the Holy Spirit, will reach all people because God himself will see to it. As the Holy Spirit moves and empowers us to take the gospel to the nations, nothing is going to stand in the way. As Dr. Brian Vickers puts it, he says, the path from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth begins to be paved at Pentecost. The undoing of the curse of Babel is just a piece in the plan that God has made to undo the curse of sin on the whole world. You see, the gospel itself, as it goes forth, speaks a renewal It, by the power of Christ, undoes the curse that is upon all humanity because of our sin. And we see here this peace being put in place of God's plan, that the curse of Babel, the confusion of languages, the barriers that exist to reaching people with the gospel are no match for the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will accomplish his mission and undo the curse Point number three, the message over the medium. There is a lot of attention given to the miracle that we see here in Acts chapter two, and rightly so. It is an amazing moment, not something that we should just breeze over lightly as though it's no big deal. God has has entered into the scene. There are tongues of fire, the sound of of great winds, and therefore it deserves our attention. And my desire in in what I am saying here is not to belittle or take away from the significance of the miracle that happened there on the day of Pentecost. But I do want to say that there is a danger that we must guard against, and that is valuing the medium over the message. We see in in various churches and church traditions across the, the Western world where this happens where the the whole idea of speaking in tongues has become in and of itself this amazing thing devoid of the message that was tied to it here in Acts chapter 2. Where tongues itself, the miracle, the miraculous thing, has become the goal. And it is over-prioritized even over the message. Where the medium over-prioritizes, becomes more important than the message. It reminds me of fountain pens. Fountain pens, I don't know if you realize this, are a very popular thing, especially among, if you go to seminary or, or in, I'm sure, other colleges and universities, fountain pens are a very popular kind of niche thing where there's these people that, that love these fancy pens and, and, you know, the way they write and you can replace the inks and, and they're cool, don't get me wrong. But if you go and just begin to look at the prices of like nice fountain pens, they are really, really expensive. If you go into the, the bookstore at uh, Southern Seminary, they have a, a whole selection of fountain pens. It's very popular there at Southern Seminary. I've had multiple professors who, who were very proud of their, their fountain pen collection. You look at the prices, $150. That's a cheap one. It went upwards of, of three, four, or $500, no problem for these fountain pens. What we do when we, when we value the message over the medium, when we value this miracle over the the message that it is accompanied, it's like taking this fountain pen and writing just complete 
nonsense, or worse than that, writing wickedness. What good is it to have this fountain pen? We might take this, this nonsense that we've written to show someone and say, look at this beautiful writing that I did with my fountain pen. And they read it and say, what? it's gibberish. What is, is this Greek? <laughs> no, not even. As though there's some sort of pride to be found because, well, it was written with my fountain pen, with my expensive ink. We'd say that's foolish. That fountain pen has done you no good. It is of no value if the message that you are writing with it is nonsense, if it's void of any meaning. And what that also means is that the cheapest Bic pen that you can find or Dollar Tree pen that you can find is just as valuable, just as worth its weight if it's used to write a good message. You see, when we, if you send a love note to someone to say your, your wife or your mother or your friend who is living far away and you can't see anymore, that person isn't going to be at all impressed if you write to them with your fountain pen, especially if you say nothing. That person's going to, to love and, and cherish and appreciate the, the love note or the, the message or the word of encouragement that you've given them because of the message itself, not because of the medium. You could write it with a piece of charcoal on notebook paper, and it's going to mean something to that person regardless of the medium. So we need to make sure that we are not taking the medium, that is the, the speaking in tongues, this miraculous thing, as amazing it is, as it is, and making it the priority in this story. So maybe the, the question is, what is the test of whether or not the, the medium is being put to good use? The test is whether or not it is glorifying and pointing to Christ. There are people the world over, especially here in the West, who claim the gift of tongues and the ability to, to speak in this amazing way and, and do these miraculous things. And the test of whether or not that is good is not whether or not they are actually speaking in some other language. The test of whether or not what they are doing is of any value in relation to the kingdom of God is whether or not it is pointing to Christ. In all things, this is the test. And this goes beyond just speaking in tongues. It goes to the efforts that we use to reach people. It goes to what we do here on a Sunday morning. If we conclude that because we have fog machines and drums and guitars or whatever it might be, because we have good coffee and our numbers are on the rise, therefore we are doing it right. That's not the measure of whether or not we are doing it right. The measure is whether or not Christ is being glorified. You can have the worst Folgers or worst Maxwell House coffee in the world. Your church might be uh, meeting in a, a rundown old building with barely any roof on it. You might not even have anyone in your church who can sing worth a darn or play any instruments. But if Christ is being proclaimed, regardless of any other metric, then the Spirit is at work there. This is the point that, that we are pointed to in Scripture, that this is the test. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. 
1 John 4, 1 through 3 tells us also, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is certainly true when it comes to the gift of tongues and how we ought to test these things or, or prophecy or any other sign gift that you can come up with. And this is true whether you are, are a charismatic, whether you are a continuationist, or whether you're a cessationist like me. This is the test. Does it glorify and magnify Christ? If not, then the answer is clear. It is not. The languages being spoken here in Acts are not conveying empty words for the sake of the miracle alone. They were magnifying the Lord as all words spoken in the Spirit are to do. We see in verse 11 as the response of these came, they said, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. You see, we cannot pass over the significance of the message here for the sake of the medium. Where Christ is magnified, the Spirit is working. In whatever way, in whatever form that takes, whether it is in our own language or another language or sign language or in written form, it doesn't matter. Where Christ is magnified, the Spirit is working. And where Christ is not magnified, the Spirit is not. And then finally, point number four, the expected reactions. There are two reactions that we see from this from this amazing, miraculous event where God has, as we've said, broken through into the world and his presence has become manifest in this miraculous way, we see two responses. First, in verse 12, all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? This is a, a good and right response that when the spirit moves, when the gospel is proclaimed, that there are going to be people who say, what does this mean? And that's a good answer. It's like the questions that we see in scripture from, from Nicodemus or from the Philippian jailer. When after being confronted with either Christ himself, excuse me, or a miraculous work done in the spirit, they ask the right questions. As the Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? As the spirit goes forward, there are going to be these questions. There are going to be those who respond, not because our speech is so eloquent, not because we did it in a particular way, but because the Spirit was moving. The Spirit does not work through the church and bring about no response. But as we preach the gospel, as we encourage those who are around us, as we confront those who do not know Christ, it might not seem like it happens often enough, but believe you me, where the Spirit goes forth, meaning that Christ is proclaimed, we will see these results. People will say, what does this mean? But there's another response. Verse 13 says that others mocked, saying they're filled with new wine. In the same way, when we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in the spirit, there are going to be those hardened in their hearts, those who are darkened in their eyes, unable to see the truth for what it is, unable and, and 
blinded to the point that if God himself were to, were to descend as he did on Mount Sinai, or to see the very things that we saw at the cross when Jesus was crucified in these miraculous events, that even in that, they would mock. So do not be surprised, church family, when you proclaim the gospel that people mock. Do not think for a moment that if you have done it wrong, or if you have done it right, that people won't mock. The mocking is not a result of a bad sharing of the gospel. Mocking and and ridicule and shame from those outside the church is not a sign that you have failed or that the Spirit is not working in you. It is a sign that we still live in a world filled with people who have hardened their hearts. But we still believe and we still hold to the truth that we do live and serve a God who can overcome even that to where we will see results when the gospel is proclaimed. So friends, don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged if 99 out of 100 people that you proclaim the gospel to says, I don't want to hear anything about it. If 99 out of 100 mock you and ridicule you, do not be put down. Do not be discouraged because there will be those when the Spirit works that eventually will say, what does this mean? And we'll seek to know more. As we conclude today, I want us to to think back to the title, as I, as I said, what we see here in Acts chapter 2 is the fulfillment of Pentecost. This day when the Jews would gather together and they would celebrate the provision of God. It is a fulfillment of that because in the same way that the Jews on the day of Pentecost celebrated his provision for them as demonstrated on Mount Sinai 50 days after they were brought out of Egypt, we see that in the fulfillment of this festival, we see the Lord's provision has been granted to us in the sending of the Holy Spirit. That God has not left us, as Jesus said, as orphans in this world. The Holy Spirit here in Acts is depicted as being entered into the scene. And he did not enter into the scene in Acts chapter 2 and then leave after the sermon of Pentecost was over. But this marked the beginning the beginning of a new way in which the Holy Spirit now moves in the life of God's people, indwelling each and every one of us. Each and every believer who has come to faith in Christ, who has been converted, and has been regenerated, has been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And therefore, the same power, the same work that emboldened these men and gave them the power to speak in languages they didn't understand and to preach boldly all throughout the book of Acts is in each and every one of us. For our provision. God has not left us without help, without power, without the ability to do what he has called us to do, but has sent the Holy Spirit and provided for us. If the Jews had reason to celebrate God's provision on Mount Sinai, then church family, we have all the more reason to celebrate God's provision through Pentecost. The Lord's provision for his people didn't end at the first Passover in Egypt, but was on display at Sinai. So today, the Lord's provision for his people did not end when Christ died as our Passover lamb. But the Lord demonstrates his continual provision for us in the sending of the Holy Spirit to fill us and empower us. Here's something amazing I want us to consider as well. Here in Acts chapter 2, as the Holy Spirit is coming to the church, empowering them in this supernatural way, what results is the gospel of Christ is proclaimed 
and various languages. There are tons of languages represented even here in the book of Acts. And all of them were being spoken at Pentecost here in Acts chapter 2. All of these people were in their own language hearing the gospel proclaimed, the mighty works of God proclaimed. It was amazing. But guess what, church family? The very same thing is happening right now as we speak all over the world. And it is just as amazing and just as much a work of the Spirit as it was then. You see, right now in China, the gospel is being proclaimed. Right now in Africa, the gospel is being proclaimed. Right now in Europe, the gospel is being proclaimed. In Russia, the gospel is being proclaimed. All over the world, the gospel today is being proclaimed in a host of languages. Proof of what Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit started here in Acts. That it did not end then. And it is no less a result of the Spirit's work that right now, in countries all over the world, the gospel is being proclaimed in a host of languages. And for that, we have reason to celebrate. We have reason to trust in the provision of God. Don't think for a moment that because we are not here able to speak in various languages impromptu, having never learned them, that the Spirit is not working in various languages to proclaim the gospel, to grow the kingdom of God. He is. And it is just as amazing as it was in Acts chapter 2. F.F. Bruce Bruce says in his commentary on this section, the church of Christ still speaks in many tongues. And if her speech is not now normally of the supernatural order that marked the day of Pentecost, the message is the same. It is the mighty works of God. Church family, let us go forth boldly, confidently proclaiming the mighty works of God that he has done for us in Christ Jesus. We do so knowing that we are not any less empowered in the proclamation of the mighty works of God than the disciples were in Acts chapter 2. Remember, when you look at Pentecost, see God's provision, not for these disciples only, not for the Jews only, but for all his people even today. Let's pray.